Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Aloha! Tonight on BC Radio Live, we're going to talk with Dr. Gary Siegel, author of The Mousetrap. We'll also chat with Leander Caney, author of Inside Brain. Then we are planning to hear from Brandon Phillips of The Architect. We have a new album on the house called The Spike. Finally, we'll speak to Seth Whitney from the band of people about their soon to be released self titled album. With books and music, this is BC Radio Live. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and the live video feed is now running. I am Philip Lynn, the Chief Geek of BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by the usual cast. Back again, Eric Olson, founder and publisher of BC Magazine. Hi, Eric. Philip, hello. So so great to be back. I, I, felt, I felt a hole in my soul missing last week. By the way, Lisa, could you hear what Philip was saying? All I could hear was the music. No, I pretty much can just hear the music. Hmm. So perhaps perhaps that is the case for our listeners. Maybe you should do a truncated version of who we're having on, Philip. I Sans can do that. music. Sure. Well, we're uh, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Gary Siegel, author of The Mousetrap, first in just a minute. He's already waiting on the line. We'll also chat with uh, Leander Caney, the author of Inside Steve's Brain. That'll be a, a fun segment. We're going to hear from Brandon Phillips of The Architects who have their new album, Vice, and we're going to talk to Seth Whitney from the Band of Heathens about their soon-to-be-released self-titled album. Rocket! And also, yeah, and also, I guess we've already spoken to her, but uh, should uh, formally introduce Lisa McKay, executive editor of BC Magazine. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Hey, you know what we're going to do, Lisa? What? We're going to sneak into your house, and we're going to install some sort of electrical prod... Under your seat, and not about, a cattle prod at all. And about no, it'll be more friendly than that. And about every five minutes, I'm going to enact it, and you will go ah, and you will speak. <laughs> I'm this oddly terrifying. <laughs> no, 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 no. It'll be fun. Are you sure? Yeah, it'll be fun for us. No, really no, I'm, I am, I am, uh, I am demonstrating what not to do in anticipation of. Dr. Gary Siegel and the mouth trap. See, because I just said something really pretty stupid and kind of mean and retarded. And the point of all that was is we want Lisa to talk more because you know what? She's really, really smart, but she's still she's still somewhat shy about this whole talking uh, over the airwaves thing. But you know, we're just chatting with pals on the phone. That's true. So there you go. But yeah, I really was trying to be kind of like really stupid and put my foot in my mouth. Uh, in, That's impressive. In, a case study for tonight. Well, yes, in advance of the mousetrap. <laughs> well, let's let's just say. I mean, I'm I'm sure uh, you're not alone. I'm certainly not alone in in occasionally saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. I'm I'm pretty sure most of us have done it. Maybe not quite as violently as Eric did just then. Uh, it can be hard though to give tough information, say hard things without coming across like a jackass. <clears throat> Dr. Gary Siegel, however, has written a book called The Mouth Trap, Strategies, Tips, and Secrets to Keep Your Foot Out of Your Mouth, which promised to provide just what it says, advice on how to communicate without stumbling over your own tongue. You know, I, I really hope I can make it through this segment of the show without blowing it. I, I, wonder, I wonder if I already have. Huh. The, the website is themouthtrap.com. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Gary. Hey guys, how you doing? Really Eric, well. Eric, that, that that wasn't that bad. I mean, we 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 see things said in on TV with politicians, with celebrities, with jerks in the workplace that humiliate, embarrass, and shame them. And what you said is sounded fine to me. Well, see, the thing is, I really like Lisa. So, I, so even even saying something kind of mildly silly or embarrassing is 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 much farther than I would normally go, right, Lisa? This is true. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, it's a great book. You know, I've, I've, uh, I, I did a reasonably good job of, of skimming through it. it. It's definitely geared toward uh, more of a workplace environment, and right. obviously most most adults deal with that. You know, me being uh, 
uh, I guess I'm in middle age now, I have to admit it, and, uh, you know, sitting in my my parents' uh, house, uh, <laughs> in my office in my parents' house by myself every day, I'm not a real adult, you know, uh, I, I'm not like most people out there having to deal with other individuals face-to-face and all that kind of thing, so, uh, so it, it doesn't apply to me so much right now anyway, but uh, it looks like it's just sensational advice, and I love your, your intro with uh, poor Pierre from... Uh, from a few years back in France, yeah. maybe you can uh, uh, tell people that. I think I think that's pretty instructive and pretty dramatic <laughs> about well, uh, those who put their feet in their mouths. I think in his case, it was definitely both feet. That, that, that was a fable about a French prime minister during the 1600s who um, simply said the wrong thing at the wrong time, and the words traveled through the court, and by the time they got back to the king... He was hanged, and what we have to be very careful about is what we say, and often the words that we use you know, travel like the telephone game. But, you know, what I was going to tell you is that since you said that you um, spend a lot of time at home, what happens is we, we, we tend to have several languages. We have the language that we speak with our friends, and we have the language that we speak at work. And one of my sons is a, a producer, and when he's with his friends, he speaks what he calls Snoop Dogg. You know, it is their own little language. When he's with producers or directors or if he's pitching ideas, it's an entirely different kind of language. Do you find that, that you do that when you're in work versus at home? Uh, well, that's, that is a, an interesting analogy. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, sure, I, I do. Um, I, I wouldn't – although in my case, it's a little different because my wife actually – uh, is in the same business. Um, we, we, all of us here, the three of us on the phone, we're all um, uh, execs and, and owners of uh, the website blogcritics.org, and then my wife is also participates in that, and she's a writer, and we're all writers, and all do that. So, so I would say all of us here, and, and then certainly with my wife, would speak a common language, and it would be kind of geared toward the internet and the running of a site. And yeah, there's there would be there's a lot of um, but when you approach an investor, let's say, you, you, you almost have to speak a different language. You want to be professional. You, you want to persuade. You want to be careful what you say. You don't want to insult anybody. And what I find at work is that sometimes people forget where they are. So they say things that get them in big trouble. You know, they might just instinctively say to somebody at lunch, why don't you lay off the ice cream? And that, <laughs> that could end the relationship right there. You know, it's funny, I, I'm almost the other way around. Um, I, I don't have so much of a problem with saying things at work that I shouldn't. Uh, uh-huh. My work environment is, is pretty casual. But if I come home, I, I better be more careful. Uh, I, I can't snap at my wife the way I sometimes snap at my coworkers and get away with it. Because, uh, you know, at, at times when we say things that are irreparable, that we regret afterwards, they remember it. I mean, my grandparents were married 60 years, and I remember my grandmother turning to my grandfather and saying, Max, remember what you told me in 1923? I'll never let you forget it. You know, people <laughs> hold on to things. <laughs> that, one, that one left the mark, I guess. Hey, Gary, um, why don't you, you're, I, I know you're a consultant, and, and this is your line of work. Why don't you just give us kind of a brief rundown of, of how, you know, what your background is and what you do and how you came around to writing The Mousetrap, and maybe we can then go through some of the highlights, because as usual, we, we will be pressed for time, and, and sure. really we would like to convey as much information about the book as possible. Sure. Well, I used to, I started off as an English professor, and uh, I, t- I taught in my old high school for about eight weeks. I actually quit my, I went into the principal's office. I was in my early 20s, and I quit. I just went in there, and I said, I'm out of here. And he promised me that I would never get a job with the Unified District again. And three years later, when I was at a program at UCLA heading their writing program, I had all these principals I was involved in, and guess who was head of that committee? <laughs> and then 10 years later, when I was in the California closet business, I owned a franchise for 20 years. I ended up knocking on this guy's door in Reseda, California, and it was my principal. We get haunted by what we say, and he never forgot the rather insulting way that I left him. And I realized that one of the things that I wanted to change in my life was the burning of bridges. Now, sometimes when we're young, we just kind of say things, and we figure we're immune to disaster, but it haunts us. And as I um, 
decided to get into the training program about eight, nine years ago, I began these tact and finesse classes that had a lot of hostages, you know, people who were forced to take it, people who were, well, considered jerks in the workplace, which actually cost companies a lot of money. Have you ever worked for a jerk? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. People want to leave. They, they, they tend to get, you know, people steal when, when they're around jerks. Uh, the whole atmosphere changes. So it's important to create an atmosphere of rapport, engagement. And that's how I got into that business. And this book is based on stories from employees all over the country. In fact, people who have ever taken my workshop, they might see themselves in this book. Ah. Now, you, you cover, though, not just you know, how to deal with, with jerks that are your bosses. You've also got information on how to deal with employees that are jerks when, yeah, when I, you're the manager. I tried to cover it from every angle. So it deals with speaking down and speaking up. Uh, one of the tips I give in, uh, in either way is to embrace the resistance. You know, so often we just want to fight that person. Uh, you may have heard of what Russell Crowe did uh, to a hotel clerk once. He threw a telephone at the guy. Probably not the right way to behave. And as a result, they have to take out jerk insurance every time he's on a movie because he has this reputation of losing his temper. Well, at work, I don't know if we can take that insurance out. Do you have jerk insurance at the radio station? <laughs> That's too funny. Um, no, no, we. I don't think. I don't think we. We have no insurance of any kind. Actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> so what we do? That's easy you know, to answer. Yeah. So we got to learn how to deal with people, and that's what the book's about. It's about how to how to get employees to change their behavior, how to get bosses to do what you want them to do. Uh, there's a whole section on on. Speaking to your your spouse, your partner, your friend, your wife, your boyfriend, girlfriend, and how to create better listening skills, and uh, and a section on body language as well. What would you say some are some of the the transcendent key points that would apply to to most relationships? What should what should we be looking for and 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 striving to do in in our communication in general? I think we have to ask more questions. So many times, you know, we just assume. What, what's going on. We commit these acts of a suicide. You know, we, we, we look at situations and we don't ask, you know, well, why did that happen? For example, if someone comes in late, if, if, if your wife comes home late and immediately you, you jump to the conclusion that, you know, well, I know you went shopping or, you know, I know you stayed at work and I pro you promised that you'd be home and now you're late. Well, find out first what's going on. A lot of times we, we simply don't probe. Uh, another issue that I, I, I often, that, that kind of changed my life is I, I before I have a conversation with somebody, I decide what outcome I want. If you want to piss somebody off, that comes instinctively to us. We can do that easily. But if you want to create rapport, you envision that. You ask for what you want. You look at it. You figure, okay, how am I going to get what I want? And just creating that pause, asking those questions can make a huge difference. Boy, that is a great point. You, you, you really are right there because I think we do it – I think we do plan how we want it to go – uh, subconsciously, anyway, um, you know, w without thinking about it, and, and, and I think it buried in the back of our minds, you know, we kind of know one way or the other. And, and I suppose if it's a negative outcome, it's it's kind of a we're we're cutting up our nose to spite our face, or you know, we just we just feel we need to have that release or that outlet. But I, I think that makes a, a lot of sense, and I can certainly see that that would make sense for me. My wife and I are both pretty volatile and you know in general we're easygoing and we're friendly and and we like people and and um you know we, we enjoy interacting with them but we also have pretty bad tempers so you know it, it, it we've learned over the years we're coming up on our 10th anniversary here actually just a few weeks we've learned that you know if one is is uh in that negative frame of mind the other better stay away but and we've gotten better and better at 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 avoiding those perfect storms, but I, I can certainly see in myself that there are times when I am just looking for someone to blow up at, and, and she's, she happens to be there. It, it may not even have anything to do with her. And, and boy, do you suffer afterwards when you blow up? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's awful. So what, that, that was one of the reasons that I got into this business is I was terrible at that. I mean, I once threw a barbecue at a clerk at a drugstore. I was so angry. Wow. It, it, gets you in trouble. And I learned just simply not to do that. When I go to a rental car agent that is on the phone talking to his wife, not paying attention to me, I ask myself, what do I want? I just want my car. I don't want to teach this guy a lesson. That's all I want. 
and I create whatever way I can get that car, I will get it, even if it means simply not dealing with the fact this guy was rude, because that's a whole other outcome. So sometimes, you know, I'll joke with him. Sometimes I'll embrace what's going on. I'll feel sorry for him. I'll acknowledge something. You know, hey, man, I've been there before. I just want a non-smoking car. You know, it, it's because it, if, if we do that knee-jerk reaction that we often do, we end up spending so much more time repairing it. It's just not worth it. One of my biggest problems is I zone out. You ever do that? Okay, no, I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. No, no, I wasn't zoned out. I'm just teasing. <laughs> yeah, that pause. People hate that. I hate that. No, we zone out. And so one of the, and I do that. A lot of us, you know, they have a lot of things in our head. And I'll often say to somebody, you know what? What you're saying is, is really important. Just give me a second. And I'll write down what's in my head so I don't lose it. And now I'm open to listening. It's a simple little trick that, that, that helps a lot. Well, I wish we had more time to talk about this. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we, have, we have a very full schedule tonight, and we need to move on. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, the, the website is themousetrap.com, and the book is called The Mousetrap, Strategies, Tips, and Secrets to Keep Your Foot Out of Your Mouth. Uh, you'll also find a link to order it at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. And thank you to Gary Siegel for hey, uh, talking with us tonight. Take care, guys. Thanks so Excellent much. Excellent advice. Thank you very much. All right. Well, I am sure this confession will not surprise my co-hosts, Eric and Lisa, but I am a hardcore devotee of pretty much all things Apple. Uh, the switchboard for this show is on my MacBook Pro. My microphone is actually a, an iPhone. You can pretty much call me Philip Apple Wynn, and uh, that, that would work. I'd answer. Our, our next guest, Leander Caney, has written a couple of books about Apple already, namely uh, The Cult of Mac and The Cult of iPod. Uh, the Cult of Mac was especially good, and I have to admit I have not yet read The Cult of iPod. He also writes a blog called Cult of Mac for Wired.com, but now he has a new book called Inside Steve's Brain, referring to how he believes Apple CEO Steve Jobs operates and even how he thinks. The website is InsideSteve'sBrain.com, and welcome to BC Radio Live, Leander. Okay, thanks a lot uh, for having me. Is it well, Caney or Connie? Caney. Okay, even though there's an H there. Uh, yeah, it's um, the British pronunciation. Well, Fortunately, I turned that up in my research, Eric. I <laughs> how, how wise of you. All day long I've been telling myself Caney, Caney. Hey, knowing that I wanted to do it right, you know, during that introduction. <laughs> I would have made one of Gary's errors and made a what did he call it? A sumpticide. I love that. That was great. Sumpticide. Yeah, that was good. Well, uh, Lander, you, you're. Uh, it's. I tell you, a lot of people, I think, in the uh, Apple community, they're. Um, you know, as you describe in the Cult of Mac, people get kind of crazy. Um, more, <laughs> well, yeah. more so than maybe with any other subject. Well, I, I, you know, I, I think the vast majority actually aren't crazy, but you know, there's a small, uh, there's a there's a there's a minority, a small minority that are. And but I think uh, most people can recognize a little bit, you know, of their obsession in the crazy ones. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, it's like they can they can definitely understand it. I hesitate to mention John Gruber's name because because I'm a fan of his as well as yours, but. Uh, Boy, boy, he lit into you recently. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was uh, a little disappointed because it was, you know, um, he, he, uh, you know, he, it was it was so visceral, and I think he fell into the into the into the trap that a lot of the sort of Mac fanatics in quotes, you know, do. Uh, I think his response, you know, it was I was surprised because it was he's usually very very careful, he's usually very very rational, and he's usually very very. Um, uh, sort of cold and dispassionate, and it's a, a very factual critique. And and that one was, you know, just sort of knee-jerk fury. Yeah, um, I, I was a little surprised, and this, this is probably a little bit too inside for some of our listeners. I mean, basically, yes, enlighten uh, us, oh, oh, Apple people. Well, uh, Lander, of course, has written this book. He works for Wired, blogs for Wired, and has done a lot of things for Wired actually over the years. And Wired Magazine also published about a 3,600, 3,500-word, more or less, excerpt condensation from the book. And uh, John Gruber, who has, writes a very, very popular uh, Apple weblog called DaringFireball.net, and he read that article and just he, – he tore it apart. And, and 
I guess I would almost understand him doing that to someone who didn't have a history of writing the way that Leander does. But, I mean, I, I, having read your stuff, I, I was a little surprised to see him be, say, so ungracious. When, they, when there were two possible ways to read one description, he, uh, he seemed to assume the worst, which, like I said, I, I, I like both you guys, so I don't want to say anything too bad, but uh, it was Yeah, surprising. and I wanted to... To respond to his, you know, to his to his reaction, I would say it's critique because I don't think he really critiqued it, and uh, he used a very incendiary headline. I don't think he read the whole thing. I mean, I think it's quite clear they only read like about a third, third of it before the red mist, you know, uh, he threw it across the room probably. Um, and I wanted to to respond, but you know, I took it over to the editors uh, at the magazine, and there was a long discussion uh, about what exactly to say and. You know, nothing really got resolved, nothing got decided, and so there really wasn't a conversation about it. You know, it kind of he kind of had the last word. Um, which, well, ho- hopefully um, he'll uh, hopefully he'll read your book and and see that you're actually a lot more, you know, fair and balanced, and you know, even I, I would say probably more you know more positive than anything. You really aren't looking to to tear Apple down, tear Steve down. Just kind of list how things are. I tell the history of Apple as you see it from. <laughs> From jobs return on through right exactly I'm trying right to be, you know the, mm-hmm. I'm trying to be um, uh, objective you know dispassionate even though I'm a fan of the company and um, the, uh, you know you were talking about the loony fringe of the Mac world uh, you know I, I hear a lot uh, when I was when I was writing more frequently I'm, I'm the editor of the website now but when I was writing a lot more frequently you know I, I had a pretty good relationship with the community I think. And uh, subsequently, I'm sort of a little bit out of the public eye, and, and uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of people. Any kind of criticism of Apple is seen as an attack, or any kind of like, you know, just sort of just sort of trying to lay it out, you know, the way it is. Um, if it's not a hagiography, it's it, it's seen as a, you know, you, you're somebody who's on Microsoft's payroll, who's trying to bring the company down. Um, right. Which uh, you know is is definitely increasing. I mean, the Mac Daily News is a website they. You know, I'm I'm in there. There's a lot of sort of enemies of the Mac and Apple. You know, that John Dvorak, who's a columnist for PC World, uh, Rob Enderley, who's an analyst. Uh, you know, there are certain sort of bogeymen out there, and I'm starting to become one of them, which I think is kind of crazy after all these years writing about the company. You know, I think. Um, right, I, I, like I said, I think you've been mostly positive, just not hagiographic, as you're saying. I mean. It, one shouldn't have to say that Apple is perfect in every decision they make. Well, no, of course, and, and it's far from it. I mean, it's one of the. It's a fascinating. One of the reasons I like, I love writing about the company is because it is, it is in some. It's a big American money machine. It's a big American corporation, and it acts like a corporation. I mean, it sends out mm-hmm. cease and desist letters to some of its biggest fans, the bloggers who were really enthusiastic about writing about the company. Um, you know, I mean, it does a lot of things that 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 uh, that a lot of other companies, you know, wouldn't couldn't get away with, but because people have a very deep and personal relationship with the company and with its products, you know, they seem to, they want to defend it like uh, it's, uh, you know, some sort of hippy-dippy California, you know, cool um, personification, you know, Steve Jobs. I mean, he's obviously a cool guy, but he's also a really hard-ass bastard, sure. um, you know, and I think calling it out and sort of trying to show it, you know, looking, trying to look at it objectively, I think does people a lot more service. Than, than you know than being a fan of the company. Well, I think it certainly lifts you out of the the purely the fan spectrum, and I'm assuming the book was written for a more general audience. In that light, why don't you? Because um, you know, as always, we're going to run out of time, like we always do. Uh, could you please just relay some of the things? What did you, What did you find? What What is the essence of of Steve's brain? I know it seems to be uh, there seems to be a lot of contradictions. Yeah, you know, it was uh, it was it was going to be a general business advice book. It was going to be like you know leadership secrets because these books sell in the millions, and I wanted to do something you know that would That's appeal to the widest possible market. Um, it, it hasn't well, done badly. You're on yet. the New York Times bestseller list, so that part works at least. Right, definitely, yeah, but it's not millions yet. You know, I mean, it's uh, but, but you know, fingers crossed, <laughs> fingers crossed. But he's a weird guy to like to be using as a subject of a leadership guide because you know a lot of what he does is 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 pretty you know. Um, I don't know. You can't really advise people to, you know, to scream and shout and to fire people in elevators. Even though I, I concluded that that stuff was overplayed, but it's definitely part of his sort of scary persona. Um, you know, uh, so it became like, you know, how does how does Apple do what it does? Do what it does, and it became pretty clear that the company is is a really remarkable 
um, uh, uh, manifestation of his character traits. And they're often sort of negative character traits, you know, things like perfectionism, his elitism, his uh, persticacy, you know, uh, um, his, uh, his unwillingness to compromise. And, you know, some people could, but, you know, these are often sort of considered negative uh, personality traits, which is why you can't really use them in a business advice book. But they've created these processes at Apple, you know, that turn out products, these, you know, wonderfully well-finished products. So that is essentially the book. That's an important point because you're saying the entire shape of the book and certainly the, the title of it, the, the overall emphasis of it changed simply the more you realize that Apple is essentially Steve Jobs times you know, a multi-billion dollar corporation. That, that leads, I think, naturally to the question, um, you know, what happens when Jobs leaves or dies? I mean, the man's fought cancer. He's you know, not getting any younger. Have these processes? Do you think that they are enough to to carry forward after he leaves? Or, or yeah, is... it's a very you know that's a sixty four million dollar question. I think it's a very very good question, and um, you know I think that the company would 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 you know would would continue to chug on without him. Whether it would have the, quite the same magic, I don't know. You know, it's it he it, he's sort of like at, at one you know in one way he's the least important person there because he's not the one who's programming. You know the software. He's not the one who's designing the um, the uh, the cases. You know for the iPhone and uh, putting the hardware together. But in the other sense, he's the most important person there because he's orchestrating all this stuff and he's the final arbiter. He's the one who has that instinct. You know for what consumers um, you know need and want and how they use devices. He has this great genius. You know for for focusing on the customer. Everything that that company does is seen through the customer's eyes. And they they test and prototype and edit and generate and create everything you know with that sort of focus. And it, but if you look at, I mean, a good argument I think for the fact that it can survive without him is look at Pixar, and he set up a very similar creative environment there. And he was he was exactly the opposite. He was very hands off at Pixar, but he did the same things you know, which is like choosing very talented people, encouraging them and keeping them there, creating a very creative work environment, setting up certain processes for this creativity to flourish. Uh, and you know he cut the occasional deals and and did uh, you know went to the old premiere, but really that company worked without him. And I think um, you know the same thing would happen at Apple. He's managed to uh, uh, create that that company a culture um, that would survive you know w- without him being there. So so the hope is that he can find a, another John Lasseter like like who took over at Pixar. Uh, versus another, say, Steve Ballmer, who's actually, I think, made people long for the return of, of Bill Gates <laughs> yeah. and Microsoft. It's, it's yeah, been it, a rough three or four years. Now, it's a, yeah, there's a lot of good people there. I mean, you know, the, one of the things the book sure. discussed a little bit was, was was the different personalities, you know, the different people and how they run things. You know, I mean, the, their hardware guy, uh, uh, John Rubenstein, who's now at Palm, the executive chairman of Palm, he's trying to sprinkle a bit of magic. And it's going to be very interesting to see whether he's successful uh, at doing that. But he worked for Jobs at Next, you know, and then at Apple for a good decade. And he was the guy who was responsible for the, the you know, all of the, the hit Macs um, and the iPod and the, the iPhone, I guess. Right. Now, you, you've managed to interview... A surprising number of people. I mean, as you said, as, as a company, they're they're oddly secretive. They, you know, tend not to do interviews at all. The cease and desist letters flow like water from their their legal firm. Um, you didn't you didn't get an interview with Steve Jobs himself, but you did get a surprising number of of you know good interviews. Get a lot of inside information for the book. How do yeah. you manage that? Well, I've known these people, uh, you know, for, for for a long time. You know, I've been covering them, and uh, you know, there's a certain amount of trust there. You know, um, but it, I think it was because of the proposition. It was like th- one of the reasons I did the book was because previous biographies had been kind of depressing. You know, that, that, that they're just sort of catalogs of bad behaviour and and screaming and shouting, and they they ascribe to Jobs, you know, the worst, most venal uh, motivations. You know, he's driven by greed and, and ego. Uh, and they never they, there's absolutely nothing nothing at all about what he does well so there was a, there seemed to be a huge gap there and this was my 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 pitch to these people was that you know I'm not looking for dirt uh, I'm not looking to to repeat you know what has already been written about him I want to look into you know what what he does well and where the magic comes from and so you know they they trusted me with that with that with that pitch interesting now the book doesn't include 
the iPhone because you, I guess, at this finished writing the book before the debut of the iPhone or before the, the development of the iPhone. Uh, yeah, I was just finishing it up when it came out, and of course I was like kicked myself in the head because I was like, oh no, you know, who wants to read about well, the iPod when you got the iPhone? Yeah, that that might explain what you've been running up against the last say two years of of hardcore development. You know, yeah. Uh, any chance of a follow up? You know, kind of additional material, a revision of the book with material that they can tell you now that the uh, you can get interviews with those people. Well, Maybe you know, I hope so. I hope so. I certainly hope so. I, I I got a lot of the stuff about the iPod from John Rubenstein, you know, the guy who was in charge of it, and he um, was trying to address. I think he wasn't getting the credit he felt that he deserved in a lot of the accounts um, about what had been written about where the where the iPhone where the iPod came from, and so he wanted to set the record straight. I think because he wasn't getting the proper credit. Uh, I haven't really seen that with the iPhone. There's not been almost there's been almost no stories, no reporting whatsoever on where the iPhone came from. My my colleague Fred Vogelstein did a little bit uh, for a story on Wired that that uh, that came out a few months ago. But you know that the, it, the company's maddening because you know they they're just not interested in talking about this stuff. They're not interested in revealing uh, you know where this stuff comes from. And for them, it's a huge competitive advantage. I mean, this is one of their trade secrets. Uh, this is one of the things I've, I had difficulty with when writing the book was, you know, these processes are considered uh, trade secrets. This is how I, this is where the Apple magic comes from. They don't want to tell everybody about this, uh, you know. Right. So they, they run a risk of of having these people, you know, be drawn off by other companies looking to try to create. Yeah, but it's also the processes. It's also the processes they use. You know, I mean, a lot of other companies are very serial. You know, they 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 get the the engineers, they they make these designs, and then they hand it off to the designers who slap a case on it. You know. Apple's very much more collaborative. They work together. You know, everybody works together all the time at all stages of the project. Uh, you know, they call it deep collaboration, and there's prototypes after prototypes. And I think, you know, if you'd laid out that that fact that process like you were in a factory, you know, like the way Toyota builds cars, if you could if you could actually sort of document that as a, in a flowchart, I think that's a this is what they're afraid of losing. You know, this that is a competitive advantage to them. This is a process that creates you know some of the the most you know some of the most valuable technology products on the market today. This right. is a big part of what they do. You know, as well as the the design and the software and the the stores and the and the marketing. You know, this is a big part of of Apple's magic. So you know, right. I hope well, I chipped what, away at some of it. <laughs> well, one last thing. We're we're out of time. In fact, we're a couple minutes beyond time. But one one of the things I found most interesting about the book, as you're telling the history of Apple, essentially. Uh, through the through Steve's brain, um, you know, was just how how many near misses there were on on technologies that could have gone a completely different way. One of the ones that got a, a bit of attention in the the Mac blogosphere was was how close the current Mac OS came to looking just like the old <laughs> Mac OS. Yeah. That that scared me. I, I was I was afraid for my computer. I had to hug it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, um, you know, Jobs was very afraid, I think, of the of the uh, the, the the Osborne effect, and you, you know what that is, right? It's uh, yes, absolutely. back you in the early days, yeah. Product and suddenly you can't and, sell your current product. Right. Precisely. And so, uh, you know, the, 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 they were working on Mac OS X uh, behind the scenes, and uh, they needed to support the current the current Mac OS. You know, they needed to make it make it sound like it was it was the greatest thing on on you know since white bread and. Um, uh, it seemed like such a huge project to, to bring, to make um, the next operating system into a Macintosh operating system. But the last thing they wanted to do was give it a completely new interface. But they mocked it up anyway because there was all this advanced technology under the hood. And it was like, okay, this is what we could do if we were given the resources. And of course, as soon as Jobs saw this, it was like, yeah, no question about it. Uh, no one else in the company, you know, really wanted to make a commitment to these, to, to such a huge task. But you know, Jobs is Jobs. He's a perfectionist. He really wants to have a great user experience. So he, he, you know, he, he insisted. He demanded. He made sure that the, you know that this is this is what they did, and and look how it turned out. You know, I mean, it's it's absolutely fantastic. And he oversaw that. You know, two minute, uh, a meeting every week, and he was down. The, uh, the guy that told me the story about the development, you know, had uh, they had two machines set up. One with the the mockups, which were made uh, in in Mac in Director Macromedia Director. And then the live working code, and he was looking at it pixel by pixel to see that they match. And if they weren't, he would wig out. Well, the book well is, we have to press on, sadly, yeah. sadly. The book is Inside Steve's Brain, and you can order it from the usual blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, or 
from InsideSteve'sBrain.com, and you'll find links there to Leander Caney's blog, uh, Cult of Mac, and, and a few other things. Well, thank you very much, Leander, for stopping by to talk about it. Uh, welcome. Anytime. Thanks so much. Well, I do wish we had more time with that, but let's, uh, let's get musical. Uh, here's a minute or so of a song called Oklahoma. <laughs> from the new Architect album called Vice. We'll hear another sample from that album in a few minutes. But first, let's chat with Brandon Phillips, the uh, vocalist and guitarist for the Architects. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Hello. Thank you. Brandon, how are you? It's Eric Olson. Uh-huh. Really enjoy the album. I've been listening to it, listened a few times now, and uh, it, it's really great. I, I enjoy the, the mixture of... Uh, well, it really came out on that song on Oklahoma. You know, a little bit of a of a, of a Midwest rock feel with with the mixed with the kind of the classic punky feel. It's really nice. I enjoy it very much. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is very much where we come from. It, it where we come from. It rubs off a great deal on 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 what we do. So and we, we should you. mention I'm, I'm actually you heard it. The, the website is uh, myspace.com/slash/architectskcmo which gives a little hint about where they come from. Yep. The good old Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah, yeah you know, I don't. Weird. there aren't that many bands that I know of. you got the great, great jazz, classic jazz heritage, but I'm just I'm not aware of that many bands. Who else comes from Kansas City? Well, you know, the funny thing about our jazz heritage is that it's mostly hype. Um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> That's a good answer. Well, mo- most of the... You know, most of the jazz. Uh, if, you, if you get into anybody's like anybody's biography, uh, they all got the hell out of Kansas City as quickly as possible and never looked back. And <laughs> a lot of people were actually upset that Charlie Parker's widow allowed him to be taken back and buried here instead of uh, <laughs> somewhere where he wanted to be buried. But uh, there's no, there's a ton of great bands here, and uh, it's you know, I think it it probably helps us a lot that we're. Uh, we are extremely isolated and that we're kind of, uh, you know, we're not on a lot of people's tour routes, uh, you know, and we're, we're, sec- we're definitely not what you, you know, a, a market where, uh, you know, where you hear the, you know, the newest of the new music, you know, the second that it's available. And uh, I think it probably, it, uh, it fosters a great deal of independent spirit amongst the creative community here. Oh, good sentence. That was well put there. That Thank just tippled you. off the tongue. Hey now, now you're on Anodyne. Boy, it looks like a great label too. I know a lot of those bands. The Bell Rays have been around forever, and of course the Meat Puppets. Man, they they really have been around. They they've been around since before I was born, I think. Yep. And, and Dirt uh, Nap, they've been around too, of course. Yeah, and these are these are all uh, these are all records that I've worked on and that I've helped make. You know, I've helped make those records come out and help make them possible in some ways. I, I work at the label, so. Uh, oh, cool. It's it's extra cool to hear that you like uh, you know that, that you appreciate the breadth of our roster. So yeah, I mean it's uh, all it's all rooted in in uh, in roots rock and with you know moving over into a punkier you know kind of punk punk has kind of lost its meaning. It, it means I think what it means anymore is kind of rock rock and roll with integrity. I think it's what it means because you can hear it right away. You know. It's not it's not the Ramones anymore. Not that it ever was, you know, because 
certainly the Sex Pistols don't sound a whole lot like the Ramones, and you're going back to the very beginning now, you know, those two 30 years ago. But but anyway, uh, it, you know, a punky, kind of a little bit of a roots, rocky sort of feel and undertone to it. I was even thinking of, you guys reminded me a little bit, especially on that Oklahoma one, not, not so much on some of the others, but uh, almost of uh, a social distortion and the way they went, you know, the way they, they uh, mutated from, you know, real fast, um, yeah. you know, that kind of punk feel to to a much more roots rocky sort of feel. Yeah, where you 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 discover that uh, it doesn't have to be you know 197 beats per minute to be good, you know. And uh, yeah, that was a uh, you know it's most of most of most of everybody's favorite era of social distortion is uh, you know is when they kind of slowed it down and just and you know just concentrated on on good songs because you know one of the I don't know one of the things that you might that, that you know that could be said about punk is that a lot of good songs were kind of wasted by recording them at you know 200 beats a minute or something like that. You just kind of missed it. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good point. Right past you. Yeah, I mean those you know they were over very the quickly. Yeah, I mean, some of the best lyrics that Jello Biafra ever wrote, no one would ever know unless you had studied the lyric sheet, you know, because it right. just went by fast. Or or saw him do a spoken word performance, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, now you know, I, I see three than... Phillipses. Are you are you guys brothers? Yeah, we are. We are. The three of us are brothers. So how long have you been playing together? Forever, literally? Um yeah, our very first gig in a bar real gig, uh, you know, where there was a bar and a cover chart and all that kind of stuff. Uh Adam the drummer was nine. Oh my <laughs> Yeah, he was nine. We played in a bar and there was uh there was I think we may have even been paid for it. I don't know. Uh but uh, for, yeah, from there to I mean, when we our very, the very first time we toured the entire the entirety of North America, uh, both of both my little brothers had to drop out of high school to do it. Wow. So, yeah. Well, you're touring you're touring quite a bit coming up. Uh, I noticed that tomorrow you're going to be in Denver, then Omaha, yep. then Kansas City. Take Sunday off. Minneapolis, Chicago, Bowling Green, Ohio, Cleveland. Eric. Yes. That's your neighborhood. It sure is. The Grog please Shop. Was just there recently. Saw Meet Pete Manifesto. Yeah, please, please drop in on us. Always happy to. Uh, gonna be. Gonna be down at the House of Blues in Dallas on in Ju- on June third. That's my neighborhood. I'll be there back next week for a concert. So. Interesting. Yeah, yeah you're uh, you're definitely all over the place. Yeah, let's yeah. let's remind people how to how to get all this information. Um, there's the Anodyne site, and then of course there's the MySpace site. Let's let's yeah, uh, restate that. MySpace.com slash Architects KCMO. That's A-R-C-H-I-T-E-C-T-S-K-C-M-O. Now, is this your third album? This is the third album we have made as the Architects. Yes, indeed. And how would you say, I haven't heard the other two, how would you say you've progressed? Where does this one come out? Well, um, let's see. I would say that the very first one was very, very much more uh, rooted in, like, classic rock. There was a lot less, a lot less punk came through on that record. Yeah, oh, interesting. Uh, for for one reason or another, and then the second one was extraordinarily punk, and it was like you know it was a, a very very everything the whole the whole like idea with which we made the second record was uh, you know was a very kind of punk rock ideal, and then uh, and this one I I would say. At the risk of sounding hackneyed and cliche, this is, this one is probably uh, you know an attempt at an optimal mix of the two. You know, the Hegelian dialectic. You mean? Yes, indeed. <laughs> it, this is a, this is uh, a, a dialectic. We wanted to throw that out there into the zeitgeist that we're having. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Amen. man, you are he- you are heady semi-punks. Yes, and. I, I could tell that you were about to tempt me into throwing a bunch more twenty-five cent art school words in there, and I, I, didn't really <laughs> I won't bite. <laughs> now, how do you guys write? Um, interesting. Uh, we used to, when I was uh, a little kid, and we were all little kids, we used to. I used to like write a song and then bring it and like teach it to everybody, and we would, you know, and and eventually that turned into me writing songs and teaching them to everybody and and trying to get everybody to play parts that I wanted them to play. Uh, which was a stupid idea, <laughs> and uh, the results were uh, predictably awful. And uh, so then, you know, then we would write songs by just sort of jamming, and that doesn't work either. 
because when you make a jam, it is very rare that you make a jam that has any melody whatsoever. Right. So now the the heavy on the is, vibe. Yeah, heavy on the vibe, not so much on uh, like singability. So now <laughs> the, the task is uh, I come in with as little of an idea as I can as I can be comfortable with, and then and then and then we jam on it. Oh, the little brothers have grown up and can help a little more too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would wither on the vine without them. You know, they, uh, you know, no man is an island, and they definitely keep me honest. You know. So does poor Keenan ever feel left out? You know, we talked about this when Keenan joined the band because we felt like, you know, we liked Keenan was our friend before he joined the band, and we definitely we felt like we'd had so many fourth members, like fourth and fifth members, you know, going back for like a decade and this band and the other band that we had before this, that we felt like, like a troop of vampires that were just sort of leaving desiccated corpses by the roadside. Nice. And, desiccated. And, Love it. Yeah. And it was, it was just like, it was like, we need to be careful with Kenan. We need to be gentle and tender with Kenan because I don't want to, you know, whatever it is we've done to all these other people, I don't want to do to him because he's a, he's a great guy. Uh, so, uh, we we certainly endeavor to not let him feel left out, or uh, you know, I, I suppose there's a, a measure of that that you can't possibly plan for. You know, that being in a band with three brothers who have been in a band together for 15 years or something, sure. is, that's got to be challenging. But I want to I want to cushion the blow as much as I possibly can. You know. Well, we are unfortunately out of time again, uh, but we do have another sample from the album. I've got about a minute, uh, minute 11, actually, of Daddy Wore Black. Is there anything you want to say about that track before we uh, head out? Um, just that I'm really proud of that one. All right, very you're, good. Uh, you're picking my favorites, so. Very good. So, well, yeah, here, comes, here comes Daddy Wore Black. For the shots and ran outside. Sheriff came over and took off his hat Kept asking me, boy, where's your mother at? Black from the new album Vice. Uh, the band is The Architects, and you'll find them online, as we said, at myspace.com slash architectskcmo. They are currently touring. They'll be in Denver tomorrow, and you can check the MySpace page to find out when they will be near you, and also to listen to some more of their music. Uh, and thanks to Brandon for calling in. Our final guest of the evening, as we move quickly, is Seth Whitney, and he is a heathen. In fact, he's one member of the Band of Heathens, and here's a sample of one of the songs from their new album. The song is Jackson Station. She's been up all night, she got crows walking around her eyes. She can still raise a cup in toast to well ran dry. He left her on a Tuesday still. With gin, whiskey, and a bottle of pills Now she's waiting at the Jackson Station Looking over the hill Take me away Get out with the play a fast, fast song Lay me down Where the river runs wide and strong Just 
The Band of Heathens. The new album is also called The Band of Heathens, and it will be released next Tuesday, May 20th. You can pre-order it now at bandofheathens.com or myspace.com slash thebandofheathens, and I'm told it'll ship a few days early if you pre-order it. Seth Whitney is our guest tonight. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Seth. Hi, Eric. How you doing? Well, I'm Eric. That was Philip, and I'm I'm well. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Is this Philip or Eric? I am Eric. The guy who introduced you was Philip because, you know, that's what he does. <laughs> Sorry about that, Eric. That's what we make him do. No, that's quite all right. We, we uh, <laughs> There's no problem with that. So how are you doing? Well, you guys have a great site. I mean, what kind of band with putting out a record for the first time has such a cool site? You got your – is it Flash? What's it, what's in the middle there with the with the uh, gas pump and all that? How was well, that designed? The design was um, taken from the the cover of our our first studio album, actually, um, which was um, has the gas pump and the swamp, and they just kind of rolled with the whole idea of the swamp. And uh, Weber Design was was the guys who did the the website. They did a great job. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a excellent site. It looks fairly professional. And by golly, you're right. That sure does. It matches the album cover. Absolutely. Well, thanks uh, again. Thanks for joining us. I, I really uh, uh, I become a broken record. It's it's fun to have people on, uh, you know, who we like a lot musically. I I really enjoyed uh, the CD. It kind of covering the the range of of uh, Texas, kind of a western rock singer songwriter, but you know, really with a kind of a classic Texas feel to it. Does that describe you guys reasonably well? Do you think? I think so. I I think that you know, there's several songwriters in the group and they all have uh, slightly different backgrounds and um, it's really just uh, you can call it American music you know it's got a little bit of everything it's got a little bit of country a little bit of rock and roll soul and uh, and then of course Ray Wiley Hubbard produced the studio album who is you know the vibe doctor and just kind of added a whole swampy feel to it Swampy, yeah, you're right. I I I did leave that out. It certainly does have a swampy feel, and that's more of an East Texas thing, right? Where it's uh, bleeding over into Louisiana. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. Geographically speaking, that is. Now you guys are based in Austin, right? Could you tell us how you came together? Uh, it's kind of it's an interesting story, uh, kind of a a, uh, a a magnetic attraction, is what it seems like. Yeah, we were all. Uh performing with different bands all over Austin, but there's a club called Momo's um, down on West 6th Street, and uh, we were all performing in our own little conceptions. I was playing bass with, you know, all of the guys at some point or another, and and it all just kind of configured into doing one show with everybody, since everyone was playing for everyone else. Um, and it, came, it just became kind of its own little following, so we put out a live album you know, just as a flute, really, and it, it just caught on. You were an Austin supergroup. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know if I'd say that, but um, it led to another live album, which we also uh, filmed for you know to put on a DVD called Live and Antones, and uh, and that's what we did. We released two live records before we even released a studio album. Well, the, the funniest part about the, the story of the band, for me at least, is how you came about your name, which was a total newspaper misprint. Is that right? Yeah, you know, I don't know if anybody knows the real story of how that happened. I know that um, we were calling ourselves the Good Time Supper Club just because it was kind of a fun thing we did every Wednesday. And... Uh, uh, one of the promoters just put it in the newspaper one time as the heathens, and it grew grew from there, I think. <laughs> and then you had to become the band of heathens because there was a punk band, which which of course there would be. Yeah, there's like a <laughs> there's a punk band. There's a there's a motorcycle group that actually has the name copyrighted as well. I mean, there's heathens everywhere. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> they they are in the bushes, man. They're, they you got to look. You can't swing a cat without hitting a heathen. Absolutely. We're in Texas here. <laughs> Especially. Now, who are the songwriters? Can maybe give us a little um, 
you know, a little description of, of, of how they vary, uh, or, or perhaps your favorite song by each, maybe that approach, whatever's easier for you? Yeah, I think, you know, there's uh, Ed Jurdy, Gordy Quist, and Colin Brooks are the, the main songwriters, and uh, just about this band, we're all from all over the country, so um, Ed Jurdy's from Boston, and he has kind of a, his, his songwriting is all over the place, but he's got a real soulful feel to it. Um, Gordy's more of a country feel. He's from Houston, and uh, Carlin is from um, um, from up north, uh, Michigan. So he's got he's got kind of a more of a southern rock kind of feel for some reason. I don't know where that came from, but oh, that's that's fitting. You know, I mean, you got you got Bob Seger up there, and and. There's there's a connection between the kind of the real down the middle midwestern you know rock and roll feel and southern rock. There's not a big difference there. Yeah, and so um, they all had all their own songs before we started this group, and that's how that's where it all started. But now um, there's more of a concerted effort to start writing together and uh, and uh, as a band as well. So. Any songs on the on the new album um, written as a band rather than individually? Um, there's a couple of the songs were written by all three of the the main songwriters, but for this album, no, it was mostly um, solo efforts and and just with, between the three songwriters. All the parts, you know, were all just improvised on the spot, so. And uh, I see you guys are, are uh, I assume you're having some sort of release party, aren't you? I see you're playing all over the place, and we, of course, need to let people know how they can find all that out. You have a MySpace uh, page, myspace.com slash thebandofheathens. And then, of course, yeah. your your uh, your other website, the one with the, the, one with the cool Flash uh, <laughs> on it. I think it's Flash, anyway. It's cool, whatever it is. It's yeah. Inter- Interactive, and that is simply bandofheathens.com. All kinds of great information, tour information, music, video. I also saw a very well done EPK, as they're called in the biz, electronic press kit, which is just basically a video over on um, YouTube, right? Right, right. So I guess. got all kinds of things going. Yeah, and I saw you had some other videos on there too, so if. If you're a YouTube fan, want to check out the video side of the band? Just go there and put in the put in the band of Heathens. So uh, yeah, let's talk about some of these shows coming up. And I'm, I'm guessing you have a, a release party amongst that. Yeah, well, like yeah we got, um, we're doing the Waterloo Records in store, of course. Um, something we kind of do every time we release something. Um, the big the big CD release show is really going to be at Green Hall on the uh, May 23rd. Um, the record actually comes out in stores on the 20th, but um, May 23rd, we're, we're having a big show at Green Hall, so hope people can make that. Looks we're like you're playing all over Texas, over mostly. Yeah, we got the Kerrville Folk Festival coming up on May 31st. Um, we're even going on the big music cruise this, this year in July down to Cozumel, I think. Out of Galveston, yeah. That's yeah. A, that's, that's, uh, I've, I've heard good things about that. Uh, a week-long cruise, basically, leave from Galveston, hit Mexico, come back. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Yeah, it, 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 boy, you know, I feel sorry for you. you Got to go through all that. <laughs> you poor guys. Yeah, oh, you know, we should yeah. mention too, because this is pretty impressive stuff. I mean, uh, pretty much anyone who's into music knows how important a scene Austin is. But you guys were voted the best new band of the year for for '07, right? We were. Yeah, it was a real honor to be uh, thought of like that. And was that any kind of band, or was that by genre, or was that just across the board? That was across the board. I think um, we were also named, um, you know, second as best rich rock band, and um, we got second for best album of the year. And I think we came in second behind Sleep at the Wheel on uh, best overall band too. So that was, I mean, we were kind of stunned. That that's some pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, behind a Sleep at the Wheel. Completely wow. Unexpected. Yeah, completely unexpected great amazing yeah and and what i keep hearing about is how really really amazing your live show is and it's a lot more rock and 
than than even the CD, which which really does cover the spectrum and it has some you know pretty pretty gentle you know it goes pretty far into the countryside of it. But I, I hear your live shows is pretty pretty darn rocking. Yeah, we um, we can. That's the coolest part about the band really is that we can we can tear it up rock and roll style or we can do acoustic shows too that are really quite mellow and um gives us some range so it's nice well you can get uh people can hear some more samples from the album get kind of an idea of the range that's available at your myspace site again that's uh myspace.com slash the band of heathens you need the word v in there to get the right band uh and of course there is the uh, the other site just bandofheathens.com this time without the v no definite article on the website. Yes, the definite article on the MySpace. <laughs> Hopefully that will oh. change eventually. Someone copyrighted the the. Oh. Already. So. Yeah, the the. Matt Johnson, British guy. <laughs> Great band. Well, I wish uh, we, we are actually out of time for the show. What a shock. So, yeah, yeah. It, uh, it moved, unfortunately, quite quickly tonight. But uh, thanks very much, Steph, for coming on and talking with us about it. Uh, remind well, my people pleasure. That the, thanks, uh, thanks for having me. The new album is The Band of Eden. Uh, you can order that from the website I mentioned earlier, myspace.com or bandofeden.com. Thanks also to Brandon Phillips, Leander Feeney, and Gary Spiegel from earlier in the show. And of course, to my co-hosts, Lisa McKay and Eric Olson. I'm Philip Wynn, and this has been DC Radio Live. We do broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. So be sure to visit us live to participate in the chat room and watch the video feed. If you missed the broadcast, audio archives are available online or you can subscribe to the podcast to have BC Radio Live delivered to you each week. Until next week, aloha! Aloha!